The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, of course. Uh, good to see you as always. I always forget to say this. Please hit like and subscribe uh, and share this video with your friends if you feel compelled. Uh, other than that, today I'll be super quick because there is a lot in the show. Uh, first of all, it is the European far-right episode, by which I mean I am talking to Jonas Pontesen about the rise of the far-right in Sweden. I'm also talking to our friend and Jacobin Europe editor, David Broder, about the rise of the far-right in Italy. Uh, and then beyond that, I will also be talking to Alex Gurevich, who has a new piece in Catalyst about post-work socialism and some of the various constraints and problems with that framework. So again, uh, thank you for watching. Please hit like and subscribe. And without further ado, let's get to it. All right, so I'm now joined by David Broder. He is, of course, Jacobin's Europe editor. He's also the author of the book, First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy. And actually, he has an upcoming book from Pluto Press titled Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. I feel compelled to mention that you can actually pre-order this book from Pluto Press. And actually, if you order it from their website and use the code BRODER20, you can get 20% off. So I will link that down below. Uh, David, first of all, it's very exciting for us to be able to like share a code on this channel because we've never done that before. Obviously, having no corporate sponsorships or anything of the like. Uh, but more importantly, great to see you. Hi, Jen. Great to see you too. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so obviously you are here to talk about the recent election in Italy and uh, the results. You've been covering uh, the Italian right, obviously, for quite some time. Uh, I think people know that the big news over the weekend is that Giorgia Maloney and her far-right party, the Brothers of Italy, uh, won an election in Italy, and Maloney is now going to become the next prime minister. So obviously, this is in the context of quite a lot of far-right electoral activity in Europe more broadly lately. Uh, and and so, so it's a little difficult sometimes to kind of keep the different far-right agendas straight. And obviously, there is quite a bit of overlap between, you know, all of the different far-right parties across Europe. But I guess the opening question for you is, uh, what exactly were the Brothers of Italy campaigning on? What does their platform look like? And a follow-up is, uh, what does their electoral base look like? Okay, so Brothers of Italy, Fratelli d'Italia, uh, is part of a right-wing coalition, which also includes two other parties, Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia and the anti-immigrant Lega, led by Matteo Salvini. Uh, these other two parties were in a cross-party coalition led by Mario Draghi, uh, former chief of the European Central Bank uh, for the last year and a half, uh, alongside the centre-left Democrats and Five Star. Um, so basically, this election is the product of the downfall of that previous sort of national unity government, so-called. Uh, and when Draghi was uh, the prime minister... Uh, very much kind of fated by the centre-left as a kind of saviour of Italy, as someone bringing in European recovery uh, funds after the pandemic and so on. Uh, Meloni's party, Brothers of Italy, was the only opposition. Um, and basically, this election uh, allowed it to assert itself basically main, as the main party of the right-wing coalition, saying, you know, they hadn't been in coalition before, they're not to blame for what previous governments have been doing. Uh, but at the same time, kind of trying to assert themselves as not a 
overly destabilizing force, uh, particularly in terms of the European recovery funds uh, and in terms of foreign policy, Russia and Ukraine, uh, Italy's relation to the EU and so on. In fact, because uh, even in advance of the election, when it was called in July, uh, it was basically guaranteed all along that the right-wing coalition were were bound to win and that Fratelli d'Italia were going to be the largest party. Uh, so actually, the, the campaign mainly took the form of um, other parties sort of questioning whether Fratelli d'Italia were going to be disruptive, uh, whether they included sort of neo-fascist figures, uh, whether they were soft on Putin, this kind of thing. Uh, and then in response to that, Fratelli d'Italia claiming that they were being unfairly victimised and that the left uh, ought to apologise for their own uh, errors and crimes and their own undemocratic uh, conduct and so on. Uh, so, so the actual policy content of the campaign was very uh, thin, uh, including with regard to issues like energy bills, mm. uh, which, in fact, most Italians said was their uh, main, uh, you know, the thing that most concerns them. Uh, broadly, Fratelli d'Italia is a party uh, that um, uh, you know, centres its message on a very harsh uh, nationalist identity politics, the defence of the natural family. Um, at times in the past, that has even the recent past, uh, that's involved things like uh, great replacement theory, claiming that the left plans a ethnic substitution of whites in alliance with speculators like George Soros and this kind of thing. Um, but in this campaign, it, it basically mixed some of that kind of identity politics with the message that actually on the economy and on foreign policy, it won't be too uh, disruptive uh, in terms of who votes for them. Basically, um, I think it's it's kind of too easy to sort of assume that, well, you know, they're this like rebellious force. So therefore, they're like mobilizing you know, disgruntled, left behind, uh, you know, working class voters, this kind of thing. Uh, but really, actually, if you look at the the electorate and the overall right wing vote, you know, where the votes have come from, it's quite clear that basically what's happened is that Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy, uh, now ha- has basically won votes from its own allies. The overall right wing vote is basically the same as it was in the 1990s and 2000s. Uh, you know, kind of mid forties percent. So, in that right. sense, there's not really an expansion of the electorate. Uh, there are, of course, certain changes which have happened as Fratelli d'Italia has become a bigger party. I mean, in 2018, it only got four percent. So, it was very then it had a very like identitarian electorate that probably previously belonged to other sort of neo-fascist uh, parties. Whereas this time, it had a lot more things like, uh, you know, holding a conference where it sort of showed off its business credentials, uh, including a few other kind of former Berlusconi ministers and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing, in order to sort of project the image of a sort of broader right-wing party, but within which the the sort of old uh, neo-fascist tradition is is still somehow part. So that brings up something interesting, which is, uh, you know, in your articles, part of what you have argued is that uh, this this rise was on one hand kind of a long time in the making and that the center right, uh, you know, supposedly more moderate or supposedly, you know, parties that were supposed to be like a moderating force actually enabled and helped accelerate the rise of the far right. Uh, so how exactly has has this played out over the last couple of years? Well, um as I said, there's this coalition of these 
uh, three right-wing parties, and you know the first time they went to government together was already in 1994. Uh, Ber- Silvio Berlusconi, the you know the billionaire tycoon, often you know compared to Trump and so on, uh, he he kind of gave a, he gave a speech in 2019 where he said, well, you know, in the 1990s, I brought the fascists into government. He actually used the word fascists. Mm. Um, you know, I constitutionalized and legitimized them. I sort of brought them into the tent. Um, but over time, uh, he, you know, while he had a dominant position uh, in the right-wing coalition in the in the 90s and 2000s, uh, that's kind of ebbed, uh, particularly in the uh, post 2008 crisis period. Uh, partly uh, because Berlusconi has often gone into a sort of um, broad tent or, or technocratic governments, which has sort of undermined his hold on the right. Uh, and and then in terms of push voters towards the further right uh, options, you know we saw uh, Matteo Salvini's Lega even before this was took over the leadership of the right wing from Berlusconi. Um, but then also, I mean, I think there's a strange kind of rein, re, uh, reinvention of Berlusconi in recent years as a kind of cuddlier and more moderate uh, figure, which is rather strange for anyone who remembers the 2000s. Uh, it bears obvious comparison with the um, the way in which George W. Bush, uh, how his legacy has been sort of reinterpreted by parts of the U.S. Uh, sort of centrist and centre-right uh, in in the wake of Trump, in the sense that a figure who was previously seen as as uh, extreme and and uh, and as uh, pushing uh, away from the the more the imagined more moderate traditions of his party, uh, then in turn becomes the 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 golden age who was longed for. Um, but yeah, I mean, Berlusconi's government's played an important role in questioning the kind of anti-fascist identity of the Italian Republic, uh, in focusing policy on on harsh attacks on immigrants, uh, and in uh, electing for, or appointing former uh, fascists to ministerial roles. It should also be said, though, that, that this isn't only a process from coming within the right-wing coalition. And over time, we've seen uh, centre-left media and centre-left politicians also um, go in for this in adopting a, a quite indulgent uh, a view of uh, Milani, uh, including a notable uh, kind of amnesia uh, over over even quite recent uh, statements, which clearly point to her connection to, the, to a specifically neo-fascist uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I think that actually raises another question, which is, uh, we know that turnout in this election was incredibly, incredibly low. Uh, why was, why couldn't either moderates or the left mobilize their bases in this election against the, uh, ascendance of the far right? So part of the reason why the right won a majority of seats, even with, uh, 44% of the vote, is an electoral system that rewards coalitions. Mm. So on the right, there was a united uh, three, uh, in fact, four-party front, uh, whereas the various opposition forces, most importantly, the, the Democrats, who are the sort of uh, historic kind of liberal Europeanist party, uh, and then Five Star, which is a quite newer and more eclectic force, uh, they didn't make an agreement to run together uh, and then there were also various kind of smaller forces, both more centrist and uh, on, on sort of further left as well. Um, so I think the, the the problem is is that the, the Democrats, who are the most important party, which are called centre left, uh, in fact 
I think you'd say the more a better definition would be to call them a kind of uh, progressive neoliberal party, uh, which combines basically liberal uh, economics with um, some um, with, with embrace of the European Union, some civil rights stances, and so on. Um, they ran their election campaign basically as trying to mobilise voters' um, uh, fear of the a danger, or maybe even just, uh, as they would put it, incompetence of the right-wing parties. Uh, so in that sense, they did try and rally uh, what could be called a loosely uh, an anti-fascist uh, vote. Uh, but at the same time, they didn't make the electoral coalition, which could have made the election even remotely competitive. So because there was simply no chance that the divided centre and centre-left would win, uh, the the whole idea of the the kind of useful pragmatic vote uh, basically mobilised very few. Uh, the Five Star Movement uh, did a quite different kind of campaign, which was very focused on its uh, economic record in government, and even though it had a quite strange path when it was in government because it was in coalition at different points with the Lega, sort of far right, uh, and at a different point with the Democrats uh, over the last few years. Uh, before joining Draghi's National Unity Government, uh, they very much played up a, a more kind of social image, so particularly uh, unemployment benefits, which they introduced in 2019 for the first time, uh, and also a nine euro an hour minimum wage. And Italy currently has no minimum wage. So from a very poor initial polling position of about eight or nine percent, uh, Five Star eventually got 15. Uh, so although that wasn't a great result for them, it showed a certain ability to mobilise basically southern working-class voters. Uh, overall, I think, beyond the sort of specific tactics of the election, what we see is indeed a massive uh, abandonment of electoral engagement by working-class and southern voters, most of whom do not vote. And the overall turnout was 64%. Uh, that mightn't sound that bad, uh, in the US context, right. if you think, of, but but actually Italy uh, in the seventies and eighties had you know ninety two, ninety three, ninety four percent turnout in elections. You know, it used to have big mass parties, uh, particularly a communist party, very rooted in in working class life and communities. And so the left, well, what passes for the left now is something very different to that, uh, because uh, I mean. W- one kind of indicative thing, I think, is there's, there was a kind of a satirical programme which did like a fake ad for each advert for each of the parties. And the one they did for the Democrats was like an advert to not vote. And the idea was basically like the less people vote, the better the Democrats will do. Because as everyone, uh, well, in Italy is known, uh, the, the Democrats are the party of older and wealthier Italians. Like the the le- the the more your income, the more likely you are to vote for them, and they also have a very old electorate. Um, so, I mean, I think you know, there's obviously after the election, there's been a lot of sort of discussion on the centre left, like should they have run together with Five Star and this kind of thing, or you know, should they even have run with kind of even more hawkish neoliberal centrists who also had a separate campaign. But I mean, really, the issue isn't that they didn't you know, band together the votes they had. It's that, you know, millions of votes, like, I mean, uh, to put it in very schematic terms, you know, the Democrat Party got five million votes. Mm -hmm. In 2006, the same, the the coalition of the same forces 
got 19 million votes. So there's just been a a very drastic uh, drop off in its uh, social base. Yeah. Uh, I I, I do want to ask you about uh, Maloney herself, uh, because, you know, there's obviously been a lot of media coverage around her. Uh, Lots of people have sort of described her as like a new female Mussolini. Uh, And and as you pointed out, uh, Italy has sort of had a kind of long history of various populist strongmen kind of rising to power. Uh, You, of course, had mentioned Berlusconi. So the question, I guess, is, is Maloney kind of a continuation of Mussolini or Berlusconi or or is she just complete, something completely different? Well, uh, here I am again tempted to plug my book and the title <laughs> Mussolini's Grandchildren, because I think it, the important thing is that there is a genealogy, there is a continuation, but it's also different. Yeah. Um, often when we think of, you know, often when we talk about, you know, is you know, Marine Le Pen or, or Trump or maybe Bolsonaro, these other examples... We ask if they're fascist, and, and often the, the the debate gets kind of ground down in the question of whether or not we think that it's important that they reflect the kind of political forms that were typical of the interwar period. You know, the social violence, uh, the veterans, uh, the the sort of rising revolutionary movements, this kind of thing. But I think what's very interesting about the uh, case of Milani and Brothers of Italy is that there's actually a direct organisational continuity from the end of World War II to now. Uh, her party even has in its logo, and she explicitly defends the tradition of the uh, MSI, which was the party created by uh, the defeated uh, supporters of Mussolini in 1946. Uh, in fact, it was only made up of uh, the cadres who had followed Mussolini right to the end of the war uh, in the uh, fight alongside Nazi Germany against the partisans. Uh, so that was a very, um, very for a very long time, a a, a party in, in post-war democracy that kind of struggled to uh, f- sort of force itself into um, sort of real sort of national you know, the, the area of parties that could be in government. And was very much like a party of, of veterans uh, who sort of longed for the what they saw as the better days when they had their regime. Um, but then, so so over time, though, there were kind of important changes, particularly in the sense that, um, while say in the nineteen sixties and seventies uh, was a very violent period in Italian politics, and of course, you know, into the eighties, uh, the the leaders of the nineteen forties were still around and still in charge of the party. Um, now that generation has passed, uh, the Cold War is over, there's no longer a mass Communist Party. Uh, so Milani joined the MSI in 1992, and that was also you know, pretty much the period when it was first uh, going into national government. Berlusconi, in his first uh, coalition in 1994, he included the MSI, uh, they kind of made some sort of symbolic moves away from the the the, the tradition of the regime, uh, in particular uh, by condemning its anti-Semitism, uh, the racial laws, the Holocaust, um, and indeed the parties ultimately merged. MSI directly, uh, which became Alianza Nazionale, uh, renamed itself. Then it directly joined Berlusconi's party. But then the problem with that sort of progression, the, the sort of image of, of, of moderation, is that Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy, was actually created in 2012 uh, as, a, as a split and as a partial rejection of, of, of that merger. 
um, which actually like reclaimed the tradition of post-war neo-fascism. Um, so in Maloney's party, um, they openly venerate the leaders of the post-war MSI who declared themselves to be fascists. They also have a certain brand of kind of conspiracy theory, racism, the exclusivist idea of the national community drawn from that past, uh, but they also try and integrate it into a sort of wider uh, conservatism. And basically the relationship with Berlusconi and also figures like Salvini has sort of helped them do that. Really what they've succeeded in doing is breaking down any kind of boundary between uh, centre-right and far-right. So their ideas and their reference points uh, no longer seem um, extreme because they've been normalised as sort of part of the the general uh, sort of right wing uh, cultural uh, mass. So um, so yeah, I mean, I think of, you know, of course, uh, I mean, I I wrote an article for the New York Times, which then was very much perceived in Italy as you know I had called Meloni a fascist, and then there was a lot of reaction against that. Uh, and Maloney herself, she was interviewed for La Stampa, which is a daily newspaper in Turin, and said, well, of course, we're not going to you know, establish a dictatorship. But it's a, a quite strange thing to say, because, you know, of course, uh, you know, one would hope that would be the bare minimum. Um, but I think, you know, we're, we're not going to see like a fascist regime. I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. a kind of ludicrous idea of what could happen. What's much more likely is something more akin to the kind of things we see with, with governments like um, uh, Orbán's in Viktor Orbán's in Hungary, uh, in which there's a certain kind of um, empowerment of the executive, very harsh attacks on opposition groups, uh, maybe even some sort of constitutional changes. Although it seems unlikely that Maloney will will actually have a big enough majority uh, to do that. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it, it it's part of a longer term erosion of uh, certainly of anti-fascist sort of uh, standards. Uh, but but also of a, a certain kind of erosion of 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 the of of a kind of more kind of participatory uh, idea of of democracy. It's a rise of sort of identity politics and so on. But but I don't think it's 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 not right to put it in the terms of like the overthrow of right. what went before because it's not like that. It's radicalization of a process that's been going on for a long time. So maybe let's wrap up on that question uh, because obviously you know. I think people are wondering what comes next, right? So, uh, you know, you, you started answering a little bit of this, but what do you think Meloni and Brothers of Italy will actually be able to achieve in government? Uh, what are they going to try to do? Do you think that they have any sort of long-term staying power? And then finally, you know, what kinds of opposition or sort of institutional barriers or obstacles will they come up against? Well, I think that they... I mean, one thing that's important to to state as well is that they've they've made a very big deal in the big run up to this election of the fact of the well, of their intention to not uh, sort of upset Italy's place in the international order. So they made a very big deal of their commitment to NATO, of their support for Ukraine. They kind of distanced themselves from some of the previous kind of pro. Uh, Putin stuff, which had been very explicitly like you know, Putin is good because he defends Christian civilization, uh, and replaced that with a, a much more uh, hostile position. Uh, even to the extent that a lot of liberal media painted Salvini rather than Milani as the real kind of destabilizing force. 
uh, also in economic matters, I mean, they, they promised some very severe um, tax cuts and indeed a flat tax rate to get rid of progressive income tax, uh, which would blow an enormous hole of in the public finances, you know, like 100 billion euros a, a year. Uh, I think in practice, actually, they're not going to be able to do th- uh, that that part of their agenda also because the energy crisis is so severe that they'll actually have to pursue a more interventionist agenda than they'll even want to. Um, I I feel, in fact, that because the government is likely to be so mediocre uh, in its economic performance and also change little in foreign policy terms, it will actually be tempted to make a bigger deal of sort of identitarian and sort of divisive um, policies which are basically intended to harden a kind of right-wing base behind itself. Um, you know, there's a lot of churn in the uh, right-wing electorate. Probably, probably more than half of Milani's voters voted for Salvini's Lega only three or four years ago. So, I think in order to try and rally them behind her, um, it's very likely that she'll do things like you know we've we've uh, seen uh, proposed before uh, ideas like uh, a uh, a constitutional change which would. Um, uh, uh, criminalise apologism for communist totalitarianism and Islamic extremism. Uh, this, of course, the idea being that uh, that you know that kind of um, uh, law could be used to kind of squash various types of opposition. Uh, I think a, a big deal as well is that uh, you know she's promised a naval blockade of the Mediterranean. Uh, in order to um, stop migrants from crossing. Uh, I think, of course, the idea of literally blockading the whole Mediterranean is, is, is impossible, but certainly we can imagine things like clashes between the Navy and rescue boats, uh, sort of war with uh, NGOs, this kind of thing, uh, migrant rescue NGOs. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think... And of course, also we're, we're, one other thing is that um, you know this is uh, a government which is uh, hostile to things like the idea of allowing um, migrants, uh, children born in Italy, to um, get Italian citizenship, and which has even talked about uh, forcing businesses owned by non-EU nationals to like pay huge amounts of tax uh, upfront. This kind of thing. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, in that sense, it is much more likely that we'll see kind of lots of little wars around these kind of issues uh, rather than a sort of, a, you know, a sort of upsurge of of, um, of of sort of authoritarianism in, in that sense. I, th- I think it's um, also difficult to tell in a way how long it might last. Uh, the right wing parties together have a big parliamentary majority. Uh, but there's a very strong tendency in uh, Italian politics for um, the coalitions to to kind of swap and switch even during the parliament. You know, the right-wing parties stood for election together, but that doesn't mean they have to stay together. Um, and I think there are certain fault lines within the, the coalition, uh, particularly if, as we prob- probably ought to expect, uh, it will very soon head into a quite deep uh, recession. Uh, so I think... Though I, the caveat I put on that is, I don't think we can expect 
oh, well, there's a big crisis, so therefore it's good because then she collapses because you know, that could produce other kinds of negative consequences as well in terms of you know the, the general direction of, of politics has been for sort of solidaristic uh, policies to and you know mobilization on the on the base of working class interests to become ever more absent and for various kind of right wing uh, forms of reaction ideas of like you know tax cutting to create jobs and stuff even uh, to to become much more central to all political discourse so I think uh, even if there is kind of deep stabilization uh, it doesn't mean that uh, what uh, eventually replaces her will be better all right uh, David Broder again we have to shout out his forthcoming book Mussolini's grandchildren fascism in contemporary Italy that is coming out from Pluto press. And if you order the book from the Pluto Press website, you can get 20% off with the code BRODER20. David, great to see you as always. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. All right. I am now joined by Jonas Pontesen. He is professor of comparative politics at the University of Geneva and a leading researcher on Swedish social democracy. He's joining us today to give some context uh, around the recent Swedish election. Jonas, great to see you. Thanks for having me. So I think as you know, most people watching are well aware, uh, recently Sweden held an election and the far right party, the Sweden Democrats, uh, made rather significant and somewhat surprising gains. Uh, I think people are probably also aware that, you know, the Sweden Democrats are uh, they they have sort of put forward anti-immigrant sentiments. They've been sort of sounding the alarm on crime. Uh, I think people probably also know that they have roots in uh, Swedish neo-Nazi uh the, the Swedish neo-Nazi right, uh, although, of course, in recent decades, in recent years, they've been trying to disavow that. So maybe just to uh, begin broadly, how exactly would you characterize the current political pl- platform of the Sweden Democrats? And um, where from Sweden do they draw most of their support? So the Sweden Democrats are um, a right-wing populist party, as we call them, political mm-hmm. scientists. Uh, I I think, and as you said, they have, it is often said that that they have neo-Nazi roots that many other right-wing populist parties uh, do not. And it, I suppose in that sense, maybe there is a comparison here with Italy and the brothers of, of Italy. That, um, though, as you also noted, I, I think the Sweden Democrats themselves would say uh, We've been uh, getting rid of Nazis over the last 20 years and and sort of adopting uh, anti-discrimination platforms and charters and and sort of purging their ranks of of the radical, of the very radical right. Um, And I don't know actually, or I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows exactly how 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 important those sort of fascist roots might be or might become. Um, they are also distinguished as being perhaps the most working class party mm-hmm. uh, in Sweden today. Certainly, if you look at members of parliament in the in the parliament that is now being replaced, uh, in which they had. Um, let me check here. Uh, they they had 
62 members of parliament and and I believe that at least 30, if not 40 of those members of parliament came from backgrounds that we would, that we categorize as sort of manual workers or lower middle class or something, which is a very high percentage by, by Swedish standards. The Swedish Social Democrats are overwhelmingly university educated, the people who sit in the parliament these days. Um, so they have a, a a kind of working class profile and 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 they have a a kind of radical right past and those two things have uh, are in some tension with each other um they get a lot of votes and I can talk a little bit more about this from from working class voters mm -hmm. uh or that's certainly the category of voters in terms of if we look at Swedes usually divide the electorate into self-employed um, workers and then white-collar employees with and without university education and and uh, among workers uh, the Sweden Democrats now are not haven't overtaken but they run they're running neck to neck with the Social Democrats which is um, no other party has ever done that uh, so they appeal to and they also in contrast to the social democrats appeal a lot to self-employed people mm. uh, so they they do well among the self-employed and they do well among workers and they do very badly among university educated people surprise surprise i mean this mm. is a story that we know right um, i think that related to how well they're doing among workers is I think that among the European populist radical right parties these days, they are probably one of the most welfare chauvinist parties in the mm. sense that they are the, they pre present themselves as defenders of the welfare state. Uh, they're also against immigration, or they would like to impose restrictions on immigration, but they present themselves as defenders of the welfare state. In the last uh, after the last election in 2018, there was discussion about whether or not they would form part of a um, right wing or right block government coalition government, and those negotiations fell apart. And one of the, the Swedes referred to them as bourgeois parties, meaning non left parties. And uh, one of those parties decided to support the Social Democrats for the social democratic government instead. Interestingly, there was some debate about immigration and there are numbers of value issues on which liberals and centrists consider this party to be maybe out of, or at least did consider it to be out of the mainstream. But one of the biggest uh, stumbling blocks in those negotiations was that the, that the Sweden Democrats wanted to increase the generosity of unemployment benefits, which, mm. which had been uh, cut by the by previous governments. And that was, in, in some sense, I think for the conservatives and the liberals, that was as big a problem as anything they had to say about gay marriage or something right. like that. Um, they have become, and, and the entire Swedish debate has become very focused recently on um on crime mm -hmm. and 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 so they are anti-immigration but 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 almost more so than being anti-immigration 
in the in the campaign, they've been anti-crime and sort of tough on law and order, increase prison sentences, uh, send home immigrants who 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 are found guilty of crimes. Mm-hmm. But but it's become very much a a law order crime, and obviously um, and and strengthening the army. And clearly, the the crisis in Ukraine or the war in Ukraine, in some sense, helped them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I I want to stay on that question because uh you know especially what you say given their sort of working class base um that's a very interesting question because I think you know at least here in the U.S. when you see working class voters sort of turn to right populist politicians or parties uh I think. And, you know, anti-immigration sentiment or, you know, fears about crime as well. I think often what underlies that is a growing sense of economic inequality, uh, you know, economic anxiety. Uh, We saw that, obviously, in 2016 in the U.S. with the election of Trump and, you know, a significant part of sort of blue collar voters in the Midwest turning to Trump after years of voting uh, for Democrats. And I I, want to ask you about this in the Swedish context, of course, because obviously compared to the U.S., you know, we tend to think of Sweden as a very one of the most equal places on Earth with a very generous social safety net and welfare state. And so I guess the question for you is what kinds of longer term changes to Sweden's economy and, you know, the welfare state and trade union movements may have come before this moment that could have precipitated the rise or helped precipitate the rise of the Sweden Democrats? When we look at this specific election, the shift between the left and the right was tiny, tiny, Mm. uh, less than a half percentage points. So we were already in a very tight situation in in, uh, 2018. Uh, As I said, the center party uh, chose to ally with the left or chose to become a supporter of the left rather than entering into a negotiation with the with the populists. That party lost badly in the election, this, in this current election. The liberals lost badly in the current election and the Christian Democrats lost badly in the, in the current election. If you look at the sort of original three left parties, they lost badly in 2006 and in 2010 mm-hmm. uh, and in 2014. Mm-hmm. But in this election, they did, they actually, their combined vote share uh, social Democrats, left and Greens actually increased. Mm-hmm. So, so, so in that sense, as you rightly say, what happened in this election has to do with kind of re, a recomposition of the, of the center right or the right block, a, a recomposition of the right block and now a kind of symbolic acceptance of the, populists that had so, so the story is really about the Swedish right in the in this particular election I think mm-hmm. um, going back to this picture we have of Sweden as uh, or yeah lots of people have I and I I sometimes share it and in any case I profit from it since it gives me an opportunity to talk a lot um, so when the Social Democrats were in power in between 1994 and 2006, uh, 
they pursued a series of policies which, you know, in the European context, we often refer to as the third way. Uh, and those policies involved uh, reducing marginal income taxes on the rich. Uh, this was an agreement with the bourgeois parties. So a kind of reducing the the, the um, progressive taxation, if you want to call it that, and capping overall taxation, um, putting lots of money into tertiary education uh, and trying to maintain public services and financing some of that uh, by reducing unemployment insurance compensation, uh, sick pay, and uh, social assistance, and, and introducing, and you know, and th this was all done in the name of, um, you know, increasing people's employability, yeah. uh, social investment, investing in the chil in children instead of instead of spending on consumption, uh, spending on investment, and that this would generate a more equal society in the, or that this would generate a more equal society in the long run. Um, if you look at the distribution of income among um, working age households, and I like to leave the elderly out, they, they have, it's a kind of special category. But if you look at the, the, if you look at the Gini coefficient, which is only one of many measures, of course, of inequality, but if you look at disposable household income, working age households, the Gini coefficient, which is, yeah, it, it ranges between zero and one. And if you are at one, then if you are, if the smaller the number is, the, the more equal the society is. I can talk about that if you want. But the Gini coefficient for disposable income increased by 37 percent from 1992 to 2018. Uh, so, so disposable income inequality has grown a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and what is striking is that in Sweden, this is somewhat different from a number of other countries, the Gini coefficient for market income, uh, that is to say people's earnings, household earnings before taxes and transfers, only increased by 13%. So more than half and nearly two-thirds of the increase in inequality has happened through changes in the tax system <laughs> and, and, and the income transfer system. So, so it's really the welfare state that has been in some ways reconfigured. And the Social Democrats were not the only people who did this. Uh, the non-left parties were in power in the early 90s and again from 2006 to 2014. Um, but the Social Democrats did not reverse what those bourgeois governments had done. And in fact, in many ways, I think, initiated changes that contributed this kind of retreat from redistribution. Mm -hmm. uh, and to go back to something you were hinting at when you were talking about uh, populist voters in the U.S. and so on, I think I think a lot of a lot of Swedish working class voters 
kind of they they observe inequality. Mm-hmm. Their households are struggling much more, especially after the, or since 2008. Their households are struggling in a way they were not. They are convinced with fairly good reason that um, mainstream parties of the left and the right are not going to do anything. They haven't done anything for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, taxing the rich is not an option. And according to all of these parties, we have maxed out on overall taxation or overall public spending. Welfare chauvinism becomes a fairly rational way to try to deal with this problem from the point of view of, quote unquote, native Swedes, and mm-hmm. also from the point of view of some immigrants who've been around for 20, 30 years or something like that. So now we're, so the the re, the pie to be redistributed isn't going to grow. Mm-hmm. And now we're looking for some criteria whereby I and my household and my community can can improve their gain, get more from this pie. And, and, you know, saying that from the point of view of these people, saying that people who have yet to become citizens or people who have lived here for less than 10 years, you know, maybe that's a fair criterion for deciding who gets unemployment benefits and who doesn't or who gets child care subsidies and who doesn't. So, so in that sense, I think, I think, Many of us political scientists kind of attribute the problems of the left to these cultural issues, mm. gay marriage, multiculturalism, all the woke things that the left is doing. Uh, and and in my opinion, there is a there, I don't want to say that 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 isn't a problem in the eyes of working class voters. But I think the problem is very much about material grievances mm-hmm. and and the fact that the left isn't uh, speaking to the, or hasn't spoken, yeah, has kind of retreated from or taken a, a, we are responsible for managing the economy and this comes first kind of uh, position. Yeah, yeah. I want to stay on that question because you had mentioned something very interesting, which is that the left actually did make gains this election, although, you know, obviously not to the extent that the Sweden Democrats did. So, uh, you know, you've talked about the sort of failure of the moderate or centrist parties, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why, you know, the left was not able to counter or stop the rise of the Sweden Democrats. Because like you say, you know, the warning signs, I think, have been here for quite some time. Right. Right. I think it brings us to two things. And you asked about unions earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 there's a big problem on that front. Um, we all we all or you all Americans, but many <laughs> Europeans too, looking at at Sweden, think of it as this very strong trade union movement with very high rates of unionization and so on. Um, what we fail to recognize often, I think, is that, in fact, there are three trade union movements in Sweden. Uh, there is a worker, blue-collar set of trade unions, which don't organize white-collar employees at all. Uh, and all of those unions are affiliated with this confederation, which is called ELO. Uh, and then there is 
white collar equivalents of LO, sectoral unions organizing nurses and doctors in the in the public sector, uh, employees in, of private industry and so on. And then there is a third set of unions, which are professional unions, which organize only people with particular university degrees, medical doctors, lawyers, engineers, what have you. The blue collar uh, LO unions or worker unions, they used to organize about 85% of the working class in this kind of blue collar sense of the word in 1994. And today they organize about 60%. So they've lost that just not only has that part of the population shrunk, but they've, but, but union density in that group has declined uh, by 25 percentage points. The white collar unions and especially the professional unions have been growing. So, so there are, so the kind of the upper union unions among the, in the upper part of the Swedish labor force are doing very well and are continuing to do well. But the uh, blue collar unions are doing, have been doing very badly and have become very preoccupied with uh, trying to retain their members. Uh, and as a result of that, I think they've distanced themselves from the social democrats hmm. uh, and they've kind of tried to or they tried to become less politically active they were and they still are um, affiliated with the social democratic party in some sense everybody who's a leader of one of these unions is a social democrat but partly because the social democrats have sort of gone their own way and become more white collar in their orientation uh, but also because of the populists threat and we can't sort of so the populist so among LO members in the last election or at least in a survey that was done in May among, even among LO members the populists are nearly neck and neck with the social democrats uh, and 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 this makes it hard for the unions to 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 mobilize strongly against the populist threat, as it were, mm -hmm. uh, I think. So there is, um, so the weakening of the blue collar unions is a, has kind of implied, and this again is a process that's been in the making for, for decades now, has sort of made it harder for the, the connection between the social democrats and, and sort of normal working class people it have have got those unions used to be the kind of crucial intermediary uh and and they are both much weaker than they were and much more defensive and in some sense trying to prevent membership losses by being more apolitical in a sense mm -hmm. um so so unionization i think is is an important or or union losses in the blue collar ranks is an important uh part of that story um the other thing i was going to say and again this part of the problem resonates with with um trumpism and populism in many other countries 
The most striking thing, if you look at the re- election results and where did the populists do well and badly, one thing that's very clear is that they do well they do well among men and much less well among women. Uh, and but the other thing is they did badly in Stockholm mm. uh, and they did not as badly but but uh, quite badly in Gothenburg and Malmo. So there's three big cities and in Stockholm. So their their national vote share was 20.5%. And in Stockholm, their vote share was 10%. So they're, they're running at half their national vote share in the city of Stockholm. Uh, and they, and everywhere else they do well. Uh, so it is partly, and it's not so much the rural areas, the north of Sweden, which is probably the poorest remains, has always been a stronghold of the left. Uh, and of trade unions, mm-hmm. uh, but in the southern third of the country, small towns, uh, they are really doing very, very well. And I think that, to me, is a is a problem for. And here, I mean, it's easy to blame the social democrats, but I think that left parties in general, or the left in general, let's put it that way has always had a problem dealing with regional inequalities and regional inequalities in all, certainly in European countries and even more so in the United States, have grown phenomenally. I mean, much, mm-hmm. of, the, much of the inequality that we've seen in the, in the last 20, 30 years has, been, has taken a spatial form, I think. Um, and, and to the extent that the left talks about inequality, and and does anything about it uh, it's about gender it's about income possibly class or maybe it was about class once upon a time but but i think the left has a very hard time sort of thinking about and and proposing policies that that address regional regional issues and if you look at regions and and how poor they are relative to, to the richest region in their country this is a very good predictor of the populist vote share, basically. Uh, so that as, as re- regions fall behind, populism thrives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and actually in the Swedish case, I think it's interesting because the, the Sweden Democrats don't talk about this as an issue, uh, because they're nationalists. So they talk about Swedes versus immigrants, or they mm-hmm. talk about crime, or they talk about Russia. So they are, so they themselves are not, they're not promising regional aid, but they are clearly tapping into material uh, grievances, which are very much related to, to regional development. And, and, you know, the city of Stockholm has grown phenomenally, both in terms of housing and how many people live there, but just in terms of economic growth. And, you know, it's, it's again, a very similar story in the U.S. And, and I think if the, if the left, if, if, so, so if, a, if a kind of social democratic reformist left is ever going to kind of roll back populist gains, I think being able to speak to this set of issues there to put it very crudely, we are never going to regain the working class by, by, um, 
by criminalizing gay marriage. I mean, this is not an important issue to these people, right? Uh, in in my opinion, I mean, it's right. It's it's just not. I mean, it, they may nod when somebody says that you know that 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 gay marriage is a problem, but it's not what they they're voting on, or it's not the core of, of what their what their issues are. Mm-hmm. And if, and if we want to address core concerns and and sort of pull the rug out from underneath the populace, then I think speaking to issues about regional development and and which can also be related to green transition and sort of alternative growth models or thinking of thinking in terms of um, something in which financial markets and metropolitan areas don't just drive everything. So maybe then let's wrap up on the question of what possibly comes next. Um, Of course, we don't really know at this point what's going to happen with the coalition government. uh, But just on a very general level, what do you think these election results um, and, you know, a possible right wing coalition government could mean uh, not just for the future of Swedish politics, um, but also for the future of Sweden's social democracy. Because as you mentioned, you know, the Sweden Democrats are what you call welfare chauvinists. And I'm wondering how you think that's going to change the, you know, safety net programs and the welfare state going forward. Yep. I don't mean to take up too much time, but I think we actually, (laughs) I think we actually know exactly what will happen in the near future. Um, there will be a a right government. Mm-hmm. It will almost certainly con- in that government there will almost certainly be two parties, the conservatives and the Christian Democrats. The liberals will be a support party outside the government. They will never vote, or they have said they will never vote for a government that has populists holding ministerial portfolios. Uh, so the liberals will not vote for the for populists in the government, and the populists will retaliate by not voting for liberals in the government. So we will end up with a two-party minority government, which draws on liberal and populist uh, votes in parliament. And in order for those those two parties to support the government, they need to be given committee assignments. And uh, and um, policy promises or policy concessions. Uh, there was a vote today, so I'm a little bit on Swedish politics. So the Speaker of Parliament was elected today. It was thought that the populists would present the candidate. They chose not to present the candidate. Uh, the Conservative, who had been Speaker already, remained Speaker of the of the in in the Parliament. The first vice chair is a social democrat. The second vice chair is a populist. Um, so p- committee assignments are going to be put around, and the populists, at least now, are you know they're celebrating their victory. They are now in. They now have a, a speakership, second vice, but in any case, it's something. They are going to get two committee chairs and two committee vice chairs or something like that, and and they see this as. Be now finally being recognized as part of the political system or something like that. Um, 
And a year from now, my guess is that they, so right now they're kind of playing game and being nice. Um, and a year from, and, and the question I think is how hard will they push or on policy issues over the next year? My guess is they are the biggest party on the right. Uh, they are, have been playing nice and I, and I'm guessing that they will insist on quite a few policy concessions and then, and there is at least a distinct possibility that the liberal party will then split and that uh, some group of liberal MPs, um, it would only take three of them, would choose not no longer to support this government and would they, and therefore it would open up. And this is what the Social Democrats are waiting for, a kind of liberal centrist social democratic big coalition in the middle kind of thing and i think my guess is that if i were betting i would think that that's probably the most likely thing that will right i don't think that this government so i i think we know not exactly but we know pretty well what the government will look like that mm -hmm. is for in the next two weeks uh, I don't think that government will be around two years from now, uh, and 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 in that sense, um, you it's it's possible that you that the answer to your question, what are the long term implications, is not very much will change actually, uh, and and and. Um, and they, and I think one question becomes sort of to what extent, yeah. So back up a little bit. I'd say one scenario. One scenario is that the government falls apart in less than two years. Uh, the other scenario is the government persists, and if the government persists, the populace will probably lose because they will become implicated in a set of policy deals which they wouldn't have liked so in some sense from an from a kind of electoral mobilization point of view the best thing that could happen to the sweden democrats is possible probably that the government falls apart uh before the next election if they have to go if they have to enter the next election with as a government party i think that will weaken them in a way um my own sense is that public opinion, and this includes not only blue-collar workers, but but lots of educated Swedes still are very supportive of welfare state provisions. Mm -hmm. in, in some sense, in some sense, on the one hand, nothing has been done to expand the welfare state or make it more redistributive. But on the other hand, uh, I think the things that have been done are probably um, are probably as far as you can go, at least with regard to social insurance programs, pensions, unemployment insurance, and so on. Um, and and also in private services, we've seen a lot of kind of in public services, we've seen a lot of. Uh, privatization, outsourcing of mm -hmm. janitors and caretakers and things like that. It, it's it's not obvious to me that I think mo the more radical things that 
it's not obvious to me that a lot more can be done in that domain. And the question then becomes, so it's really more in the domain of multiculturalism, language support for immigrants, um, in the domain of crime and, and so on, that perhaps we would see relatively big changes. Mm. My hunch is that none of those changes are going to address the material grievances of populist voters in some right. sense. Uh, and in fact, with respect to crime and so on, if if these changes would have any positive effects, you know, we wouldn't see them for another 10 years or something like that. So in the, so in that sense, I don't think that these are I don't I, maybe symbolically the populace can claim credit for it, but I but I don't think that these are things that are going to really change a lot. Uh, and so so we're going to be muddling through uh, and, you know, and that maybe that's is that a good thing or is that a, is that a is that a bad thing? But um and to I, be continued. I, I keep, yeah, and I keep hoping that the social democrats will, um, you know, move it. Will begin to rethink their economic policies, their redistributive policies. Uh, would begin to think more about what can we do to strengthen trade unions, uh, which which are have all been things that have just not been on their policy agenda. I think. Yeah. Um, and one one keeps hoping that, and maybe if they are in in opposition, and we do have a you know populist influenced uh, majority government, but they, their temptation is always to say we have to take responsibility, mm-hmm. right? That, that's been the social democratic thing in Sweden for the last fifty years. If there is a big crisis or big problems, Ukraine, whatever, we have we are even when we're in opposition. They are saying more or less explicitly, even when we're in opposition, we are the responsible party. Yeah. And um, there we are. All right. Again, Jonas Pontesen is a professor of comparative politics at the University of Geneva. Jonas, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So I will be back in a minute with Alex Gurevich. But first, of course, a word from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in September and get your first month free. This month's selections are Cannibal Capitalism, How Our System is Devouring Democracy, Care, and the Planet, and What We Can Do About It by Nancy Fraser, an analysis of contemporary capitalism's insatiable appetite and a rallying cry for everyone who wants to stop it from devouring our world. Self-Defense, A Philosophy of Violence by Elsa Dorlin, a look across the global history of the left tracing the politics, philosophy, and ethics of self-defense. The 2023 Versal Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, a week-to-view planner for keeping track of the year ahead. And Microverses, Observations from a Shattered Present by Dylan Riley, over a hundred short essays inviting us to think about society and social theory in new ways. Become a member today at versobooks.com.
All right, I am now here with Alex Gurevich. He is a professor of political science at Brown University and the author of the book From Slavery to the Cooperative Commonwealth. And he's joining us today to talk about his latest article for Catalyst, which is titled Post-Work Socialism? Question mark. Alex, great to see you. Thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me. So the uh, title of your article says it all. Uh, you, you have some questions with post-work socialism. And I want to just start with kind of uh, basic definitions, I guess, uh, because I think, you know, for lots of people who are watching this program, um, probably are vaguely or, you know, very familiar with what post-work or anti-work mean. Uh, and, you know, for my part, uh, I remember kind of anti-work and post-work having a big moment after Occupy. Full disclosure, uh, that's when I first uh, was acquainted with it, uh, and I thought it was very interesting. Uh, there's a lot of it that I still agree with. I think, you know, right after Occupy, everybody I knew who was in a reading group was reading Kathy Weeks' book, The Problem with Work. Uh, and, you know, I think more recently, we've seen another kind of second wave of interest interest in post-work slash anti-work because of the kind of dialogue around the so-called great resignation, right? So, um, you know, I, I and I should say that in your piece, you, uh, you, you know, are quite clear that you find value in a lot of post-work thinking as well. So maybe just to kind of kick off, um, how exactly would you characterize post-work or anti-work thinking? And uh, before we get to some of your questions and criticisms, what do the post-work theorists get right? Cool. Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, I would say that post-work socialism is one kind of answer to the general socialist question of what kind of freedom is a future socialist society offering its members? Mm -hmm. And uh, the answer is it's a society without work. And it's a society without work because... It's one in which nobody's forced to work because everybody gets an unconditional basic income or some other way of unconditionally supplying them with their basic needs. And importantly, it's a society also where there's no work ethic. So it's a society in which you won't be ostracized or dishonored or shamed or fail to have self-public standing if you choose not to work. And those are kind of equally important, I think, in post-work thinking, because the thought is, if you gave everyone a, a UBI, as the unconditional basic income is known, and they had everything they need to live, uh, but you still had the work ethic that's in some way familiar to us, people would still feel kind of such intense social pressure to, uh, to work, to do something specific with their time, that they wouldn't really enjoy free time. And so the post-work socialist vision is an answer to that question of what kind of freedom do we enjoy in a future society by saying it's a society not just freed from work, but where people really have free time. Their whole lives are lives of free time to do what they like. And uh, it's, you know, said like that, it's obviously a very compelling view. And I'll say that it's um, sort of in a way, it's a kind of view that, that uh, when I first got interested, really interested in Marxism, it was through the question, well, if we have so much technology, why do people work so much? That was that was sort of a question I asked somebody who then was like, you're a Marxist. And I was like, really? <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't think so. And then I was like, oh, that, I, it turned out I had been taught Marx badly and so on. So I came to it through there. And then I, I remember the Kathy Weeks moment. Um, I had a... Um, 
I actually had a conversation with her uh, at, the, I think, New York Public Library, or not New York Public Library, but Brooklyn. Anyway, when that came out, and I remember it, and it was a big moment, and I was really taken by that book as an expression of this view. So, um, and uh, so that's, that's what post-work socialism is and in its many variants. It's an answer to the kind of freedom that we should enjoy. Right. And, and you've hinted at this, but, but what do you think that they get right, the post-work theorists, before we move into some of the other questions? Sure. Um, there's a few things I think they get right. So one is they obviously get right something that a lot of people can agree with, which is that there are many jobs in our society that are unnecessary, that suck, that are super exploitative, or that even if they are in some way necessary, important, are done under really um, unacceptable exploitative conditions. So they get right, I think, a basic thought that our way of organizing labor is through force, compulsion, domination. That's the central mechanism by which a capitalist society gets most of its labor to be done. I think it also gets right a thought that the way the work ethic functions in our society is to kind of induce cooperation with that subordination. Mm -hmm. um, we'll get to it later. Maybe I disagree with how they interpret the work ethic, but I do think they, they, they get aspects of that right. And the other thing I think they get right is that there's a real promise to technology, at least some post-work socialists. I mean, it, it's a, you know, there's a lot of different subviews, but... Right. I'd say the pulse of especially the people who are more kind of futuristic, like Nick Cernicek and Alex Williams, mm -hmm. to a degree Kathy Weeks, um, that there's this immense productive, techno productive potential that capitalism generated and continues to generate, but which seems to, instead of reducing the hours of labor anybody has to work, seems to, on the one hand, just produce unemployment mm -hmm. and, on the other hand, make work kind of worse. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just a standard Marxian thought. And I think that, that, that's, that it's an important thought for them when they think about why we could have a post-work future. So I, I, I think those are three important thoughts that form a kind of jumping off point for them. Mm -hmm. Right. So maybe now let's uh, turn to the question of UBI, universal basic income, which you had brought up earlier, uh, because mm -hmm. as you point out, this is kind of like the main sort of policy proposal of the post-work thinkers. Uh, and uh, I, I will say just very briefly for UBI, you know, it's it's a little bit confusing because I think over the last couple of years, there's been kind of some mainstream dialogue or like mainstream confusion around this idea of UBI, where sometimes when people say UBI, what they're proposing is not actually universal or, you know, it's not actually basic, by which I mean, it won't actually ensure anybody a basic standard of living. Putting all of that aside, uh, yeah. what the post-work theorists are proposing, of course, is a universal basic income that, like I said, everybody gets, uh, regardless of whatever. It's it's actually 100% universal and basic in the sense that it will actually ensure a sort of floor of standard of living for everybody. Uh, you know, that sounds great. And as as you were as you alluded to earlier, that does seem like something that would kind of undercut the power of employers and of capitalists. Uh, I think it was Eric Olin Wright, right, who had the sort of form, uh, famous formulation that, you know, workers are not just separated from the means of production, but also from the means of subsistence. So if mm -hmm. we can at least guarantee the second part of that, that seems like a huge step forward. Uh, but the heart of your article is really kind of uh, – 
taking that assumption and sort of taking it apart. So uh, why can UBI, which sounds great, not actually deliver us a post-work society? Good, yeah. So <clears throat> what in the article, what I'm looking at is the role of the UBI in the wider post-work argument, because there are about 10,000 different kinds of arguments for UBI, as you say. Right. And it's impossible to really address them all at once because they're actually very different arguments for sometimes very different policies. So I'm not trying to make a general argument about UBI. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to make an argument about how post-work socialism thinks about freedom through this really crucial policy device. Because the role of the UBI in the post-work vision is the reason we're free is because all of our basic needs are met, not conditional on working. Right. right? So the UBI in the post-work vision then has to be unconditional on working, universal, right? It's for everybody. Basic in the sense that it is um, at a level high enough to meet all of your basic needs. So it's not partial, right? And it's an income. It's given to you in the form of some money where you then choose sort of the the, the particular basic goods that you're going to buy. So, so, and the reason just, you know, again, just to hammer on the point is this is going to matter because it's claimed that this UBI emancipates everybody because it means that nobody's forced to work and we can be socially indifferent about whether what people choose to do with their time. That's the really important sort of um, fact about the UBI in right. a post uh, post-work socialist view. And I think that that is a, dis that it's deceptive, that, that, that it's deceptive because when you imagine a society like this, they're saying, look, come be a socialist and join our particular struggle because we're offering you a future society in which everyone can be free in this way. No one's going to be forced to work and we can be indifferent as to how people choose to use their time. The problem is that in that world, the post-work socialists are presupposing the very thing that they're saying they're freeing us from. Mm. They're, they, they're presupposing a whole bunch of necessary labor mm -hmm. that they're then saying they're, nobody has to do, right. nobody's forced to do. And they're presupposing it because for the UBI to work in that world, there have to be things to buy. Mm -hmm. And not just any goods. Right. It can't be like, you know, toy sailboats and tennis balls and, you know, like paper napkins. It's got to be the basic goods. Right. Right. We have to be able to meet all of our basic needs by buying the basic goods that we need to survive. And it's not just basic goods. It has to be enough basic goods that everybody could buy them mm -hmm. at the same time with their UBI. And it has to be not just enough basic goods at today. It's got to be basic goods plus all the raw materials and industrial machinery that's available to produce the basic goods tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So you have to produce and reproduce all those raw materials and do all the production of the machines that are going to produce your basic goods next time. So the food, the clothing, the medical care, you know, the teaching, the child care, all this stuff. And some of this physical good, you know, a lot of this is actually physical goods. So for the UBI to be emancipating in the way they say, right? Because you've got to be able to buy this stuff. Somebody's got to be producing all those goods that you buy. Right. But who's doing that, right? So it's presupposing all this necessary labor. And um, uh, so 
there's something very deceptive about saying this is a free society in the sense that nobody's forced to work right. and we can be indifferent to what people do with their free time. In mm -hmm. fact, you could say it might be true that it's not conditional on any particular individual doing work, but it is conditional on on some people, on many people doing quite a bit of work right. um, to do to produce those necessary goods. Right. So, so yeah, let's let's stay on this question of necessary labor, right? Uh, why does the kind of post-work uh, explanation of, you know, technology and automation as a way to deal with that labor that would have to occur in a post-work society yeah. uh, not, not cover all the bases? Because as you kind of hinted at earlier, you know, we hear all the time that capitalism produces not just bad jobs, but like what David Graeber called bullshit jobs, like completely yeah. like pointless kind of make work tasks, uh, and that there probably is a better and more efficient way of organizing work. Uh, but but. Again, this is to say, why does technology and automation not cover all of the questions of necessary labor? Sure. Yeah, if it if it did, then we wouldn't have to worry about the fact that some labor has to be done, right? Right. Um, and that'd be good news because really the problem for the post-work social view isn't just that it presupposes the necessary labor, that it has to be done and implies that it's kind of not a political problem that we have to solve. You know, like, how are we going to determine what counts as the needs? And then who's going to do the necessary labor right. and on what terms and how's that going to be distributed? Or like, what's going to count as necessary? But then we also have reason to worry that in the post-work social society, uniquely, nobody would do it. Because not only are people being given this UBI, but also they've attacked the work ethic, which would be the other source of motivation to work, mm -hmm. right? So they've successfully destroyed any of the ways in which people you might have a general supply of, of labor to do it. Um, and they just avoided. And I should just parenthetically, because at this point, people might think that I'm just some kind of capitalist. I've written this in order to defend a different view, which I call shared right. labor socialism. We'll get to that. Where we share. Yeah, good. I just want to make sure at this stage, someone doesn't like press. Right. Jackman invited a crazy capitalist. So, um, so it's, it's worse, right? They presuppose necessary labor without acknowledging it and give us reason to believe it wouldn't be done, in which case... The UBI would be useless and you'd fall back into some other labor system. But then what about automation? And I think the problem with automation is this. I think automation is a partial solution to the problem, but it's a partial and subordinate one. It's not the answer. And um, the reason is there are many jobs that you could automate, many forms of necessary labor that probably would get automated mm -hmm. if there were a... Um, uh, uh, if we already lived in a democratic and socialist society in which we were able to collectively control and decide what's going to be automated and what isn't, rather than leaving up to what is profitable to automate. Uh, but it's only a partial subordinate one because there are some forms of labor that are intrinsically not automatable. So that's one thing, right? Mm -hmm. There are many forms of caring labor that are just intrinsically not automatable. Teaching, caring, um, all kinds of medical provision. Um, and uh, there's quite a bit of that labor, especially in a, in a society um, and in a, you know, kind of an advanced industrial society um, uh, where there's a lot more of that work to do. Right? So that's one thing. I think there's intrinsically not automatable um, work. There's other kinds of work where you can probably automate like 90% of it, but people still need to do some of it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the long term, in, in any sort of future I can kind of imagine, that's work that some people will have to do. There's also the work of maintaining the machines, mm-hmm. right? There's all kinds of work. Of, I mean, automation gets rid of some labor and creates new, la- new labor. And it does that continuously. Like we see that with machines, right? That's that you can kind of eliminate 10 jobs, but you create one or two new ones that, have, that human beings have to do. Right. And then there is a, there is just sort of labor of superintendents. I mean, there's people who still have to be there managing and, and, and watching machines. So it might not be particularly effortful, but it still requires human beings. So that's one class of reasons why I think that automation is a partial one. So I, th- I do think that it's true in a democratic social society. In one sense, necessary labor you could automate away a lot of labor. You wouldn't just get rid of the bullshit jobs, right? You mm-hmm. could automate a lot of labor and reduce the necessary labor people have to do mm-hmm. to a relatively small share of the work week. So I'm not rejecting that. But the one other thing I wanted to say is that um, the other, the, or the, the two other reasons I think automation isn't um, as strong an answer as post-work socialists have made it out to be, and I have to say I used to think that too, Mm-hmm. So I, I, this is sort of self-criticism as well, is first, you can't automate automation. So you first have to have a political process of de- determining what's going to count as a need. You have to have some political determination of needs or some social choice about needs to know then um, what's the kind of labor we're going to call necessary and therefore want to automate away first. Right. Or reduce through automation and automation isn't self-automating. Right. People sometimes just think it's just assume we can just automate necessary. Any task can be automated and we do. But there's an infinite number of needs that can be satisfied. And machines can't tell us where we should direct our efforts at any given moment in time. We can't automate everything. So that's a political problem. That's part of the political problem. Necessary labor is deciding what's going to count. The second is that um, there's a way in which necessary labor all things being equal will increase in a future emancipated society because human needs will expand. Mm-hmm. And I think post-work socialists are really kind of much more vague about this than they are clear. Sometimes they talk about needs as just what we need to survive. That's the UBI thing, right? Oh, well, so long as we have our basic needs met, then we, there are no other needs, right? There's nothing else that must be produced. Right. Everything else is just free time. But as a, you know, as a, as a kind of Marxist, and I think it's a pretty standard thought in a lot of Marxism and socialism, part of the point of emancipated society is that our needs expand. It's capitalism right. that reduces people's needs to what it takes to show up to work to next, the next day, right. right? The basic needs thing. But a future society is one in which we have a need for the development and realization of our talents. But right. that actually requires an immense amount of resources. You know, if you want to be a scientist... Or you want to be an urban planner or you want to be involved in urban planning, right? If you want to, you know, kind of stage massive music concerts, mm-hmm. like you can just think of a million tasks, right, that um, require resources. You need access to some share of the means of production, not just right. the means of subsistence. Right. If what you want is to realize and, you know, develop and realize that aspect of you and contribute it to society but that takes resources so all that stuff has to be produced and we have to think of those goods as necessary Mm -hmm. so there's going to be an increase in necessary labor which means there's more tasks that would have to be automated or Mm -hmm. at least an expansion of necessary labor from that perspective right 
So I, I think on that note, let's maybe then turn to uh, your vision of a kind of different uh, post-capitalist or so- socialist society, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll go ahead and say in, in your piece, you advocate for something that you called shared labor socialism. And um, I have a few questions about that, but I, I think maybe let's start uh, with this kind of idea of work ethic, since as you pointed out, that is a big part of the kind of post-work framework. So, uh, you know, We've already discussed the kind of post-work critique of the work ethic. Uh, where does your kind of framework disagree with the post-work thinkers on this? And maybe another way of asking the question is, what do you think a socialist or like at least non-capitalist work ethic might look like? Yeah, thanks. So that's a, it's a really good question. And I, I'll be honest, there's parts of this I'm still working out for myself mm-hmm. because in some way I sort of, I feel like I can say I came to this honestly in the sense that this isn't how I originally thought. And I found mm-hmm. it, I, st- I originally found it unnatural to think this way. I was with the post-work socialists. And when I thought more and more about it, and especially this, why, you know, why the interest in the work ethic came to the conclusion that there's something actually quite fundamental to the post-work view which was this one, which underlies the work ethic thing, which is I think that a lot of post-work thinking, and this is also what's going on in the automation stuff, is the idea that because work is necessary, it must be unfree. And I realized that's, that's just not true, mm-hmm. as it turns out. Right? That, that, I think, is actually a first thing to say. Just because something's necessary does not make it unfree. Um, and that's because what's necessary is also indeterminate. Right. It's true. Some work has to be done. But which work and under which conditions and by whom is not determined. That's why we have, you know, like history. We have modes of production. We have Mm -hmm. different work relations is because that isn't given to us. And it's capitalism in a way that reduces that constantly kind of reduces work into something merely necessary, just a means to some other ends. That's in part because the whole all work is organized around um, uh, profit, right? The yeah. workers, the, the conditions under which they work are determined by whether hiring them and having them work that way is profitable. And you have no reason to do work for the sake of profit. But in a shared labor socialist society, as I see it, it would change the character of the necessary labor because necessary labor would be shared. Everyone would do some mm-hmm. so that nobody had to spend their whole life doing all of it. And it would be work that is that, that everyone has a reason to do, therefore, because it means that they are not contributing their efforts to a society that just uses them. They're contributing their efforts to a society that has their freedom as its aim, mm-hmm. right? And you start that by sharing the necessary labor. That reduces the amount that anyone has to do to a relatively small amount. It does create real free time then to use time as you like, including to go and develop and contribute your talents if you want. Mm -hmm. But that would then mean that work has been transformed from something merely necessary into something that is an expression of human solidarity. Mm -hmm. And therefore, even that part of the day that is in some sense necessary, right, is something that could be the expression of a kind of duty people have as free people, Mm -hmm. right? We only have duties if we're free, right? If we can choose to do it for the sake of doing it as a duty, not just because we're sort of just forced to do it. And I think this is actually one of the oldest thoughts in communism. It goes back to Gracchus Babeuf, you know, the first kind of modern communist, which is to say that we can transform work into a f- kind of civic act, 
whereby we contribute our abilities to the creation of society mm -hmm. that is organized for the sake of everyone's freedom. Mm -hmm. And so that means that even the necessary part of the day, as it were, becomes an expression of our freedom and becomes an act of solidarity rather than mere, mere necessity. And I know that sounds in some ways very abstract, but I think it matters because it, to me, it's the part of the work ethic even today that I think is at once reasonable and incipiently socialist. Mm -hmm. When people, you know, the, the post-work view of the work ethic is to say it's just a capitalist ideology. It's right. just a way of inducing people to consent to their own exploitation. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's not the way ideology tends to work, at least not in this case. What it does is take something totally reasonable in people, which is that everybody should do their share. Mm -hmm. Right? That's in the incipiently socialist thought. Yeah, everybody should do their share. But the problem in capitalism, there's no way for people to do their share in a way that isn't already sort of just contributing to the maintenance and reproduction of a capitalist society. Right. That's, the, that's the problem, right, mm -hmm. is their subjective orientation is just in conflict with just the objective institutional meaning mm -hmm. of what they do. And so um, it's natural for some people to kind of react against that and say, well, I just refuse. Like the, the, the true way out of this ideology is I refuse. I don't want to do any work. I'm going to reject work. I'm going to refuse. I'm going to be against it. But the problem is that attitude is just as ideological as the work ethic idea one, because then it just flips the whole situation on its head and says, well, work can't be meaningful. It can be nothing but a form of kind of externally imposed necessity mm -hmm. on us. And I think the problem is it's not in the end what's in our heads. It's the institutional organization of mm -hmm. work. And so I'm inclined to think that a shared labor society would be based on its own work ethic, you know, a widespread norm that everybody ought to do their share. And in fact, if everybody were ready, or if, you know, the vast majority of people were ready to do their share, you wouldn't need to force them. You wouldn't need to force anyone to do it because they would do it spontaneously, right? They do it freely. You wouldn't need to compel them. You wouldn't need to, you know, constrain benefits so that people were forced to work for their benefits. In fact, there'd be good reason to think that we wouldn't make the share of what people produce dependent on how much work they do because mm -hmm. we would want work Mm -hmm. to be done for non-instrumental reasons, right? The whole idea would be for work to be an expression of our freedom and solidarity. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't attach what you earn to the amount of effort you put in. Right. We would just say you do your share and in exchange, you get a share of what you need to right. be a kind of self-developing person who can contribute their talents to right. society. Right. Let me ask you this though. Does this conception maybe rest on like, an assumption about human nature, because, you know, humans being humans, I just like can't help but think there's always going to be somebody who's like, I'd rather kick up my feet and like not do the work. Right. And in terms of, you know, I think what you're proposing, like in some distant socialist future, everybody has to work four hours a week doing the kind of undesirable or necessary labor tasks that can't be automated away. Uh, you show up, you know, for a very reduced time at the factory or whatever, like, you know, tinkering with the robots that are doing the other work like that. That's all well and good. Uh, but I, I guess, you know, maybe talk a little bit more about how you see this like worth work ethic kind of cohering. Good. I don't. So if you're it, it's a hard question to answer only because it's unclear to me what is human nature and how we know it compared to just sort of 
human beings as we have encountered them in a world that we've made. Right. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, some people think, well, people are always going to shirk. You know, if you don't force people to work, they're just not going to work. And that is, you know, an old conservative view, uh, or it's predominantly conservative. Um, but, uh, but to the degree that we worry this might just be inscribed in our nature, um, it's worth pointing out that I think a future shared, lo- shared labor socialist society would have social norms. It would have a work ethic, mm-hmm. which means that we would tend to disapprove of people who didn't do their share, right? Um, because we can't be socially indifferent to what other people do. And I think we can't be socially indifferent because we don't satisfy, no individual satisfies their needs through their own labor. We're all mutually interdependent. And that means that we can't actually be totally indifferent to what people do with their time. Our freedom depends upon how we institutionally set this up and upon what others do. Mm-hmm. And the question is just whether we can accept the demands of others as reasons for our own action or not. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, w- one answer then is, well, to the degree that people might be naturally reluctant to even do their share, you know, in this, you know, future kind of emancipated society, there would be social pressure. Right. We wouldn't, we, we wouldn't force them, right? Well, that's the ideal, right? Right. So the right, ideal is you wouldn't force them, right? We wouldn't have a, you know, it wouldn't be conscription at gunpoint. It wouldn't be that um, you won't live right. if you don't do your share, right? So there would be that, but there would be, unlike the post-work view, there wouldn't be this um, social indifference towards what people do with their time. You would be socialized into a society mm-hmm. in which it was held to be a good thing to be ready to contribute your talents and abilities to society generally. And where that would mean you don't just get total personal choice over your time, right? right. There's social determination of what the needs are, what the valuable contributions are, at least when you're ready just to do your share of what has to be done. But probably, I, I, I can't imagine that not bleeding into how you use your free time generally. Right. Right. We would tend to then admire, oh, look at the person who kind of invented this incredible machine that now makes it possible to for everyone to dispose of all of their household waste mm-hmm. without anyone having to be involved in garbage collection or something, mm-hmm. you know, like that would. But that would, you know, that would be an invention. Right? right. Look at the person who figured out how to, you know, actually create um, tunnels from city to city so that we could, you know, use underground trains traveling at multiple times the speed of sound, Mm -hmm. you know, that would, but that would be a huge enterprise involving a lot of people using their free time. Right. Right. So, um, to some degree, then the answer is, well, people will feel sometimes quite intense social pressure, right. To, to, to use their time. But I think, you know, ideally we'd also be taller. We would also tolerate a some degree, right. Of people not doing it. The second thing is, I think, I just don't think it's, True. It's true that we enjoy kicking our feet up and socializing and having free time. And there would be, I think, a lot more time for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I think that our sense of what we want to do with our free time is so intensely shaped with how work is organized now. That um, I, I find it, I, I don't, I'm not inclined to think that we can observe how people use their time now as a really good guide. Right. And people have a reason to want to make a mark on society, you know, to make something of themselves. 
And at the very minimum, we'd have to live in a society that made it possible for everyone to do that, even if they didn't take that opportunity. And that would require the resources to do that, right? Like the thought experiment I give is like, imagine, just imagine we want to make it possible for people to pursue scientific career if they want it. So that means they'd have to be educated in basic science. Like just imagine what it would take for every high school to have like a proper proper chemistry lab so they could learn chemistry. It's actually like a lot. (laughs) We have really shitty... You know, school system. So, like, you go to private school and have really good. Or if you go to, like, a, a wealthy suburban high school, then you have good chemistry labs. What if everybody did? You know, that's right. actually takes a lot. you got to produce a lot. you got to yeah. need all the beakers and the acids and the bases and all whatever. You know, mm-hmm. I don't remember my high school chemistry very well. But <laughs> that wouldn't be you your chosen point. career path. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before you even get to the point, then, of yeah. thinking, well, I'm going to see if I can, you know, try to be a scientist. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe then... Um, <clears throat> This is obviously a broad question, and it is a little bit outside the scope of your article, but I do want to ask, you know, you have this vision of shared labor socialism. What are kind of the steps or reforms that could put us on that path? Um, And the reason Uh I ask that, of course, is because the big thing for the post-work theorists is, as we've been discussing, UBI. So are there policy proposals uh, that you think, you know, kind of move us in that direction? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um... I mean, it's a good question because one of the arguments I I made and one of the reasons I thought it was important to do this critique of post-work socialism is that one very reasonable claim they make is any struggle, any the development of any left-wing political struggle today would mm-hmm. require a vision of the future. Right. Um, um, something that makes the struggle worth it since it's risky, it's timely, it's, you know... Uh, it's long term. Many of the people involved now will never see it, you know, all that kind of thing. So it has to be something that's really compelling enough. And I wanted to point out that these weird ways in which they presuppose the very thing that they say they emancipate us from, and even more so than their hostility to the work ethic is in the end a liability, because all they can end up doing is then seeing people who are committed to the work ethic as politically problematic. They don't see what's reasonable in already existing views about the work and the work ethic. And I think people also sort of many people are resistant to the UBI, not for ideological reasons, but for reasonable reasons. They understand that some work has to be done and that therefore some different kind of political visions needed to avoid the political liabilities of that post-work view, no matter how much it might seem compelling. But that was a negative point. It was to say, What's attractive, I think, about shared labor socialism is that it overcomes some of the political liabilities of the kind of deceptions and mistakes of the post-work view. But I don't think I have any political policy to offer that Mm -hmm. would take us there. And that's because I don't think the problem is a policy one. I don't think there's a kind of midpoint uh, or a first step thing. Um, because I think the fundamental problem is the lack of a well-organized workers' movement. So the answer to your question would be, because there's no way of getting there mm-hmm. without a very well-organized workers' movement with its, it's own party you know, that's able to actually control, because it would involve a dramatic change in right. property relations, right? And it would involve an immense conflict. And so that immense conflict can only be one if there's already a very well-organized workers' movement 
that has its own party that it can control in a democratic way uh, that could be used then to, you know, seize the state and, 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 and reorganize the economy. And so the answer is whatever, and, and I, I don't claim to have a, an answer to this. I'm just saying the form of the answer would be if there are policies that would help and assist the development of that movement, then that's the one. Right. Right. Right, right. So, um, you know, sometimes I think people sniff out that there's the problem with the UBI is there's a suspicious amount of support for it amongst neoliberals. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think the truth of that is that here and now what a UBI is, is demobilizing, not yeah. mobilizing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the clearest example, I think, was COVID. Right. Mm-hmm. We got everyone to stay indoors without protest by paying them off. And the most intense form of demobilization that we've had in a very long time. So. And, you know, that's so that's a kind of background resistance I have to UBI is mm-hmm. the UBI, like anything right now, is not going to be the expression of workers power that they right. would use then to build more power. It's mm-hmm. going to be individuating, individualizing, atomizing. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we can really say policy X does something absent the political context and whose victory it is. Right. And so the problem is a political one. So all I can do is offer this as a vision that I think is more sensual and compelling as a way of thinking about freedom and which one could offer uh, through the agency of some independent political party. You know, uh, I, it's a standard. It's also in a way, you know, where you can see UBI getting absorbed into democratic thinking. Mm -hmm. I have trouble believing they'd really get in going for shared labor (laughs) socialism so I think it would have to be the offering of a real independent political party from the mainstream parties. Um, uh, and, you know, what it would mean. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's. So right. that's my answer, you know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Alex Gurovich, again, uh, has an article in Catalyst titled Post-Work Socialism? Question mark. Alex, uh, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for the interview. It was great.